Within a week time span, we ended up growing like every single metric 900%. All of our systems were failing. Our desktop app was failing. Our support systems were failing. Our customer support reps were just like completely underwater. You know, really the only way out of that was through. Myself and, and others ended up having to steer a rocket ship as people were working like 16 hour days and burning out. Hey, I'm Dan Murray Serta, and this is the podcast where you can learn what makes a great entrepreneur. Today, I'm talking to Vinay Hyamath, the co-founder and CTO at Loom, which is a video communication app for business. You can use it to do stuff like record a bug, make a video course, or even explain something complex with a screen share. There's loads of use cases, and they're now valued at over $1.5 billion. But what I loved most about chatting with Vinay is hearing how many holes he's found himself in, and how he's been able to dig himself out of them again. You can learn a lot from him about grit and self-improvement. Vinay's resilience was forged at a young age. It had to be because of the environment he found himself in. So... Let's go back to the small suburb of Chicago that he lived in as a child. I grew up in a, a place called Elk Grove Village. It's a more well-to-do, like middle, upper middle class sort of area. Good education, super good education system. Ended up having to go to like a Catholic preschool when I was really young because there was no other preschool in the area. And I had to fill out church cards and uh, go to church every Sunday, even though my parents are Hindu, which was honestly pretty formative for me. I, I ended up declaring that I was atheist when I was like five years old, which was pretty non-standard for most kids. And then my my dad ended up getting a job in in a place called Huntley, Illinois, which is really like out there. I mean, it's much more developed now, but about 30 minutes south of the Wisconsin border, super small cornfield town, lots of cornfields, lots of farms. Um, and it was a huge shift. Like the education was definitely not as stellar as Elk Grove where I grew up. The place was a lot more isolated. There was a lot less to do. There was a lot more boredom. There was honestly like a lot more, for me specifically, there was a lot more racism. There was less diversity. People, to give you an idea, there were people who would like go into school with Confederate flags on their trucks. There were people who grew up in, in trailer parks and it, it was just like a very different sort of situation. and. Honestly, growing up there, I, I learned a lot of things that I'm really grateful for. Like I got to get exposed to a super bubble, right? Like a super bubble of conservatism, um, national pride, very red, like very Republican, very red. And intersecting that with like later on moving to California and being in a different kind of bubble that was like very blue, very like quote unquote progressive, which I, I, I had some thoughts on that. It was interesting to be able to like juxtapose those two worlds. It allowed, it allows me to like see when I'm in um, kind of like a bubble of extremism, which, you know, is something that I also learned on my journey becoming vegan. There, there was a moment where I was a militant vegan and very extremist about it. And so extremism is definitely something that's been like a constant in my life. The other thing that growing up in a place like Huntley, Illinois really taught me is how to have a thick skin, like how to be able to take criticism and how to be able to handle conflict in a way that is constructive and is solutions oriented, which is, is something that I think a lot of people can use in today's day and age. The other thing that it taught me was how to disassociate what is being said from the intention of it. That's something that I also learned gr growing up in in a place where a lot of people discounted me or didn't like me because of the color of my skin. About halfway through high school, 
I, I wasn't really trying to be like academic. I wasn't pushing really hard. And halfway through high school, I started really caring and I'll, I'll skip over some of those details, but I started really caring about school and, you know, becoming a really good engineer. And a lot of this was uh, inspired by a movie that I watched at the time called October Sky, which is um, for anybody who's listening, it's about these boys in a coal mining town in West Virginia. And they ended up, you know, building rockets as like a hobby. And then they ended up being some of like the most instrumental uh, astronauts and aerospace engineers as part of NASA's initial space program. And they escaped town and they were kind of like the first ones to escape this like coal mining town that didn't get out on like a football scholarship. And I feel like just given how I was feeling living in Huntley, Illinois, like a lot of that resonated with me at the time. And so me going into college, like I really wanted to just be the best engineer I could be. And so I went in for material science. What ended up happening was one day me and an accounting major, like two of my friends, one was an accounting major, one was in bioengineering, like we all got together and we were like, hey, we wanna make like a website. Let's try and figure out how to make a website, right? Like even if we don't become experts, we just thought it would be something cool to do. And what ended up happening was we built this website called Secret Feed that was basically like, there were these other forums like My Life is Bro or Frat Life. And it's like basically these college kids like posting these, it's just an endless feed of these anonymous posts that people can like upvote or downvote or comment on. And we did that for uh, Secret Feed, which was basically like, tell us a secret that you're holding and you have to be part of like a college community, right? And we, we released this website to uh, U of I, the University of Illinois at Urbana, which is where I went to school. And I remember at one point we ended up having 500 concurrent people on the website at that moment. That was a light bulb moment for me where up until that point I was doing a lot of like material science classes, physics, organic chemistry, which I still love all those subjects, but in order to get to any sort of reward, you really have to work with people who have the resources to fund like multi-billion dollar initiatives or like hundreds of millions of dollars right off the bat. Like you need access to laboratories. After making this website, like me and my friends were just like, holy crap, like right at our fingertips on our laptops using the internet, we can build something that hundreds, maybe even thousands of people can use right off the bat. And that was really the moment that I decided to start to hard pivot into um, computer science. And I actually didn't switch from material science to computer science officially. What I ended up doing is I just ended up taking the computer science classes. I found a glitch in um, the system that allowed you to sign up for classes. And I just started taking the classes. As part of that, I started getting involved with multiple communities. One was the ACM. It's kind of like it's the Association for Computing Machinery. That's like the uber nerds of computer science. And I would just hack with them and like work on schoolwork like in the ACM office just to try to absorb and download as much of their wisdom and as much of their like raw knowledge as I possibly could. I eventually ended up meeting up with a guy named Bach who was a postdoc in machine learning. And we had this idea with Gemini to work on, um, if you were recording while watching TV, we could pull out the transcripts and actually surface things that you would want to purchase based on in-product placements that people are talking about. It was doomed from the start, like looking back on it, but it was more that we just wanted to work on something. And so we started building that out, got a little bit of money, got a little bit of seed money, and then uh, ended up failing very quickly, realizing it just wasn't going to work out. But 
around that time is when I started really building up my grander vision to like build for myself and be an entrepreneur. But I'd say that even through like, I ended up getting to a point where I was doing really well in all of my computer science classes, but I wasn't going to class. You know, really it was just mostly about partying and getting schoolwork done and then, you know, working on side projects. And basically I cut out class and I cut out a lot of sleep to do it. And I reached this point where I was just like, I started looking at the tuition. My, my parents aren't super well off. So I started looking at the tuition that I was accruing on my own debt. And I started to look at like where I was spending my time. And around this time, I also was reading the, the Walter Isaacson, Steve Jobs biography. And I had also bought a MacBook. And I remember just like using my MacBook and being like, wow, this is like an amazing product. This is how products should be built. It was kind of a combination of all of these things, like not really seeing the value in getting my degree, not seeing how that was going to serve me to be the best engineer I could be, seeing like how really good product gets made in, in the Silicon Valley at the time, where at the time I was like, the Silicon Valley is where you go to be, you know, a great computer engineer. And so I kind of intersected all of these things. And when I got an offer to intern at Facebook for that summer, I ended up taking it and I ended up preemptively telling my parents that I was gonna drop out. Like I wasn't gonna come back. I was gonna go out there. I was gonna try to find a full-time job after Facebook. And I was just gonna learn as much as I possibly could um, from other software engineers that were building great products. Interesting. You actually started to talk a little bit about it, but like, tell me, tell me how you went from that journey into Loom then. What happened in between? So basically what ended up happening was during, during my Facebook internship, I, you know, I got the chance to learn from some pretty incredible people. I was on a pretty special team called the mobile web core team. And there were some awesome people on there. Like there, there were people who like knew Douglas Crockford, who's the guy who wrote the book, JavaScript, the good parts. And he actually created the JSON format, the JavaScript object notation format, which powers like all APIs now. And so I got to work with some people who like knew really good engineers and were just like really phenomenal engineers. What I'd say is that I really, I, I was super junior. I didn't get a return internship offer and it was totally understandable. I just had a lot to learn. And so what ended up happening was like about three weeks before the end of my internship, I kind of had this oh shit moment where I was like, okay, I have to like basically land a job in three weeks or I'm going back home to my parents' house and I'm like living in their basement and like, A, that's just really embarrassing. And then B, like, I, I've lost like an entire semester as well. And so I reached this point where, you know, I, I started interviewing with lots of companies. I failed a ton of interviews. I must have interviewed with like almost 70 companies and I failed all of them except for uh, two. One was with Pinterest and I, I had an offer to join Pinterest as a very early employee, I think like 14th or 15th employee. And then I, I had an offer to go to this really small startup called Backplane, uh, where I knew some people. I had some friends from U of I from college. And I, I remember sending um, an email to Paul Graham, one of, the, one of the founders of Y Combinator. And I remember just like randomly sending him an email because I was like, okay, I need to make a decision. Pinterest seems like it's blowing up, but I don't really feel connected to the people at the company. Like it didn't feel like my people. Whereas Backplane, you know, felt a little bit more like a bridge from college. It was like a little frattier, a little bit more party. I felt more connected with people. Like during my interview at the end of it, I just like hung out with the team. And so I asked him, I was like, where should I go? Like my, my goal is to, 
my goal is to learn as much as possible. And he's like, go where you feel the most comfortable with the people that you're working with, because then you'll be able to propose more things. You'll be able to work on more things that stretch your comfort zone. I took that advice. I ended up going to Backplane. At Backplane, at a high level, I learned how to hack. Um, I actually met a lot of very good friends who I'm still still really good friends with. A lot of us ended up going off and starting our own companies. Uh, my, it's where I met my co-founder, Shahid, one of my co-founders. He ended up interning at Backplane. Uh, after Backplane, I ended up going to a startup called UpThere from a referral from one of my friends. And UpThere was a cloud computing company that was competing against Dropbox at the time. And the big draw for me for going to help there was basically technical leadership and engineering. There were a lot of really incredible engineers on the team. The, the team was headed up by Bertrand Serlet, who was the senior vice president of engineer, software engineering at Apple. He worked directly with Steve Jobs. He is quoted as the father of OS X, the operating system. Uh, I got to work with people like Bogdan Coxell, who was the 30th engineer at, engineer at Google or 33rd engineer at Google. And, you know, he coined the term site reliability engineer. I got to work with a guy named Niall Dalton who built a lot of the algorithmic trading, a lot of the algorithms that algorithmic trading relies on, like a lot of the windowing and time-sliced algorithms. And so I got to work with like a lot of these pretty incredible engineers. And basically my journey at Up There started as me being by far the youngest and most junior person on the team, like by a long margin, because I dropped out of school. So I, I think I was like 22 at the time. And the average employee age was like 28 at up there. And so I started out the web team as by far the youngest and most junior person. I worked really, really hard. I, I ended up going down to the backend services team and then the systems team. And then I ended up like working within the data center. And then eventually uh, what ended up happening was the manager of the web team uh, ended up leaving. And so I was also the most like experienced sort of technical lead for web. And so I ended up going up to, going all the way back up to the web team and managing the team, doing it very poorly, and then learning a lot from that, and then hiring in my manager to replace me. And then I became the technical lead of the web team. And then I learned a lot, a lot of like managerial principles from, from that engineering manager who ended up becoming the director of engineering of that company. And so basically I, I went to up there and I became really, really technical, came all the way back up and then ending up hiring my replacement as manager. And somewhere along, along that timeline, that work timeline, I met Shahid, one of my co-founders. I met Joe, my other co-founder. And around that time at the end of up there, uh, me, Joe, Shahid had become really good friends. I was going down to their place in LA all the time. And we eventually started throwing around ideas and we realized we had a really good distribution skill set. So Joe had a background in product and a, a background in design as well. He ran his own media company for a little bit. Shahid had a background in design and also had VC connections. He was working within venture capital world for a little bit at that point. And then I was very technical and we basically all put one and one together and we were like, hey, we have a great distribution of skill sets. We all, we all had like a very deep trust in each other. We were all best friends at that point. And so I, I guess that's really where the beginning of Loom came. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. 
The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. What was the original idea for Loom? How completely different is that? And take me through like the journey, like how much have you raised? What's happened? And I guess also like what have you used from your past experiences to help you drive Loom into a positive direction? For, first off, we, we ended up starting Loom as a company called uh, OpenTest. And so Loom actually started as a user testing company and the idea, the first iteration of Loom was really just me, Joe, and Shaheed building this like network, uh, this two-sided marketplace of startups that wanted feedback on certain product flows, whether, whether it was like a checkout experience or an onboarding flow or a marketing page. They wanted feedback, video-guided feedback. And what we would do is we would plug them up with a product expert. And so... You know, if you were looking for feedback on your checkout experience, we'd be like, hey, we can like pair you up with a product manager at Amazon who worked on their checkout experience and they'll record a video of them going over the area that you want feedback on. And then they'll send you that video along with some notes and, and action items and takeaways. And really what ended up happening is people from our product help launch who had signed up for the service and wanted like Silicon Valley brain drain within their own company on how they should approach these certain times, the types of experiences. And then on the other end, it was really just our friends who felt bad for us. You know, my friends who I had made in, in the Valley as like I was living in Silicon Valley and just meeting other people. It was friends of like Shahid and Joe. And eventually what ended up happening was a few different things. One was that our friends were like, this is not worth it. Like, I think we were paying um like 70 or $80 a test, but they ended up having to like record with QuickTime and then like upload somewhere. And then that video had to process, they had to wait for the video to process. And then they had to add their notes. It was like a very time consuming experience. And then on the other hand, what we were hearing from, you know, our customers was, hey, actually I love this type of video recorded feedback, but 
I'd love to get this from my own, or like our own users. And both of those things like make total sense in retrospect, but what we ended up doing from there is we ended up pivoting towards being a user testing platform where we gave you a Chrome extension and a little piece of code that you put on your website and you would put this, this code on your website and basically be able to run these user feedback campaigns that would surface this like NPS sort of modal on your website. Someone would respond to the NPS being like, yeah, I love this experience or no, I didn't. I, I don't like the experience. And then we'd prompt them and say, hey, do you want to record a video of you giving your feedback to the website owner or like showing, showing them what you see that's wrong or right? We would do an inline Chrome extension install. We pivoted within that space for a while that like Chrome extension video uh, user testing platform space. And eventually what ended up happening was we, we learned a lot of things. Like one is that we, we started to build up a pretty serious hypothesis around video, not only from doing it, you know, with this Chrome extension, but also just like working with video from the previous incarnation of using tools like QuickTime. What ended up actually happening was we were pivoting through this user testing space and it just wasn't working. We were, we were struggling to raise money and we were running out of money. We were bootstrapping a lot of this off our own credit cards. Our credit cards had been maxed out at this point. We ended up basically having two weeks of runway left um, for, for all of us. And by that, like I said before, none of us come from like really well-to-do families. And so two weeks of runway means like you need to find a job and you know be good to go in like two or three weeks. And so what ended up happening was we looked at the Chrome extension, which just by happenstance would upload the video as it was recording. And we did that because we knew that people didn't want to wait around for their user test to like load and process. And so we looked at that and we thought, well, what if we decoupled this Chrome extension and released it as this like quick video recording tool? And our hope at the time was that we would launch this on Product Hunt and use that traffic to drive it back into the user testing platform, which looking back on that, that's like hilarious that we didn't know that the user testing platform was failing. But you know, we, we really wanted to use this as like a growth tactic to drive more traffic back into the user testing platform. And what ended up happening is when we launched, you know, within the first 36 hours, 24 hours, we got more signups on this video recording tool, this like strange one-off video recording tool. We started getting not only more traffic than we had ever had and more, more inbound inquiries and support and like more use cases than we had ever seen with anything that we'd ever, we'd ever built up until that point. It was also like the types of use cases that we started to see as people were reaching out to us and the types of videos that people were recording were just so out of, outside of like left field of what our wildest expectations were. We thought people were gonna be recording you know, overviews of their like resumes and then like sending it to their friends and being like, hey, what do you think? And, you know, we started getting people recording overviews of like stock decisions and we started getting people recording bug reports and like analytics overviews. And there, there were like all of these strange things that were happening. And, and there was like also this undercurrent of we started seeing a lot of people recording content, trying to communicate with people that they didn't work directly with. And so we started getting exposed to like the world of hybrid and like, remote and like remote communication, we started to realize, holy crap, this is like a way of working that's been around for a while. And it's actually like rapidly accelerating. And that was even before the pandemic. This was like way before the pandemic, right? This was 2016. And so intersecting all of these things, we really start to look at like this tool and we're like, okay, this is now the company. The company is no longer the user testing company. The company is now like 
this video recording tool and something's happening here and we have to figure out what it is. So it's uh, basically a story of uh, like one of those sliding doors moments, as we call them, right? Where you could have carried on with what you were already doing, but it wasn't working well enough. So you had to make a gamble, you had to make a bet, and you're using your product engineering instinct and insights to actually see what users say is valuable and take the company into that direction. Yeah, 100%. And as you pivot through, I think that there's so many different types of founders, but I think for founders that start something because they just want some like some modicum of like financial success or to be able to say, hey, we did that. Like we did something that had like real users who relied on our product. Like for founders like that, basically they're just pivoting through like a hypothesis about what the world needs and how the world is. Because basically they're trying to find like a pain point that they're solving for users. And in order to find that pain point, you have to like actually understand how the world works, right? And I, I think this is like a big misconception for a lot of people who don't start companies on their own is that they have these like misconceptions about how the world works and they think that like the idea is everything. And it's like actually like half of the battle when you don't have like an idea and a solid problem that you know about, half of the battle is figuring out what, what the fuck the problem even is. Right? Like, what is the problem? Like, what pain points do people actually have? And so, you know, as you're pivoting, you end up finding something that works and maybe it doesn't line up with your hypothesis perfectly. And, you know, usually it won't and usually it doesn't make any sense. And if you see traction, like, usually that's the point where you should hop on and say, okay, I'm here for the ride. Let me see what I can find out about what already exists in the world and what we built to address it. Because a lot of times people end up building solutions and it's like even another example of this is that somebody might build like an entire platform and then they find like one feature within their platform is like used all the time. And they're like, okay, what does that actually mean about what we're solving for our users and like what their problems actually are? And so, you know, we decided to hop on that rocket ship and we were very fortunate that that rocket ship ended up coinciding with several macroeconomic trends, you know, remote work accelerating, rapid internationalization of the, of the global workforce, unilateral rising of like internet speeds, people becoming way more comfortable with video as a momentum. And then, you know, four years later, after all of the growth from all of that, the pandemic on top of it, like just like permanently changing the way people view work. Like for startup founders, it's like, if you hit one macroeconomic trend, you're like, fuck yeah, like we built something, like it's gonna be useful. Like we got really lucky in that we had like probably four or five. And I think that we're actually going to experience and realize even more compounding effects of other macroeconomic trends that are going to build on top of that. Like, I'm super grateful for that. Talk to me a little bit about the chronological order then. So when did you guys start? When did you pivot? How much did you raise? Um, how much have you raised? What was your last valuation? If it's public, like take us through a little bit of that journey so we get some context. So 2016, we ended up launching that Chrome extension. Up until that point, we had raised like 20k or something just from like a couple of our friends but most of that was bootstrapped off our money so from the end of 2015 october 2015 through 2016 is kind of like our pivots through the user testing space landing on the loom what we called at that point the open vid chrome extension after that point we ended up raising raising a pre-seed round 500k or so 500 or 600k on like a four point six million posts, I think. So I think it was a 600K and a 4.6 million posts. 
from there, what ended up happening was we ended up really doubling down on the Chrome extension. So we ended up re- raising a seed round um, about a year after that. So 2017, I believe we raised our, our seed round and that was that was from General Catalyst, Point9 and Slack Fund. And at that point, I, I believe we had gotten to maybe like 100,000 registered users. We were doing significantly more traffic, but still like within that, we were probably signing up like hundreds of people a day, which was still great for us, but like we were building momentum at this point. And then 2018, we ended up, up until that point, what we ended up doing is we ended up hyper-focusing on the user experience of the product. We ended up hyper-focusing on features that our users were asking us for. And so it was very tactical. It's like, if people wanted a download button, we gave them a download button. Like if people wanted, you know, to do desktop recording, we built that into the Chrome extension. If people wanted the camera bubble to follow them around, we built that too. Between the pre-seed and the seed round, like it was really us like hyper-focusing on what our users were asking us for. From the seed to the A, we ended up making two important shifts. One was that we spent an entire quarter focused specifically on growth and activation. And we actually ended up going through um, a growth bootcamp called Reforge. And so we ended up basically onboarding our entire company to this Reforge class. And we were all talking, we, we all had the same nomenclature around growth. We all had the same vocabulary dictionary around growth. And we took a quarter to hyper-focus on activation. You know, what were the things in our onboarding flows that were getting in the way of people feeling comfortable sharing videos, recording videos? What could we, we did everything from like, if you use the Loop Chrome extension today, you'll see these like little phrases that say like, hey, you look great today. Like it might seem like cheeky, but that ended up leading to like a 3% increase in activation. We ended up doing like a lot of focus on like just how do we make the product feel as welcoming as possible? And that also proliferated into brand. And so we are, we started like experimenting with like contact imports, referrals. The other shift that we made is we realized that for a lot of the features that people were asking us for, for a lot of the problems that we were dealing with with our Chrome extension, we just had to become multi-platform. And so what we ended up doing uh, leading up to our Series A, which was in 2018 or 2019, I'm probably getting these dates wrong, but you know, leading up to that, what we ended up doing is we ended up started building against something we called Loom Pro. And so that was our first time that we monetized. And basically we monetized on things like a drawing tool, 4K recording with our desktop apps, those sorts of things. And so really like pro user tools, we were still unlimited recording, like unlimited everything. It was just like the features. And so around this time, you know, we were probably hitting closer to like 500,000, 600,000 users. We were like ramping, we were getting like thousands of signups a day. You know, at this point, I, I can't even remember how much video we were ingesting on our platform, but I remember there was like a moment at some point in this time where we were like, wow, there was more video being recorded into the Loom platform than like seconds in the day. You know, from the Series A, I think we ended up raising, I believe it was like 25 or 30 million. Basically, we started doubling down on team accounts. We started doubling down on like what the team experience looked like from like 2019, all all of 2019 to 2020. And I remember this because we were basically transforming our platform from like a single player mode to a multiplayer mode. It's like, usually up until that, if you use Loom, you go to your dashboard, you just see your own videos. We wanted to be able to provide an experience where teams could onboard to our platform and use our product. And so uh, our Series B ended up being a lot of build out for a lot of stability, but also a lot of build out for our team accounts. And then 
our series C, we ended up having a series B plus and that we, we recently raised our series C and I'm doing a terrible job remembering all of the exact numbers. But at this point, I think we've raised over, I think 125 million or something in total and uh, the current valuations 1.5 billion. Amazing. So just so we're, we're clear then, so you've gone from an experience of um, personal growth and, and failure as well um, into being the co-founder of a unicorn company. Like, how do you reflect on that? There's the success, right? Like there's the success in like celebrating the wins with the team, but really the failure and the pain is like what you end up remembering and it makes the success like that much more worth it. Well, why, why don't you tell me about the failure, Vinay? Yeah, totally. I mean, there, there's plenty. So trying to build a Mac and desktop app that does instant 4K recording, which is like something that technically like didn't even exist in market with a team of like nine engineers was a really bad idea. We ended up burning out the team quite a bit. Uh, we ended up shipping a product that was extremely buggy. And I learned about, you know, experimentation systems. I learned about like iterative builds, like something that I continually have to remind myself about is like, how do you take a really ambitious project? And no matter how big my ego is tied up in, hey, we can deliver this, we can like deliver the best experience ever. It's like, hey, how can we actually do it in chunks is a lesson I've learned over and over again. And then also, what is the reality of how many people you need on your team to pull this off, right? And that's something that like, as you're growing your company, you do, you're able to do so much with so few people early on, partially because there's like not like no red tape. There's less people that you have to like agree with, but also because the quality bar doesn't have to be there. It, it's not nearly at the same clip as like, you know, when you have tens of millions of users like we do now. And th there's just like a lot of lessons there where as you're building out and scaling your, your first company, the bar and the expectation for shipping and iterating goes up exponentially. And you as a founder are pro like, as a product founder, you're probably an optimist and you're somebody who really wants to believe that you can get stuff done that nobody else has done before. But there's also like natural ceilings and rate limits that you hit with human capability, especially as like the system of your company grows in complexity and the number of users you serve. There have been lessons through scale. So just because given that, that I am like on the technical leadership end, I, I think that the pandemic was like both an amazing time and a really fucking hard time for the whole team. And, you know, honestly, especially, especially me, like we went through two phases of hyper growth in 2020. And the first phase of hyper growth ended up happening when the pandemic hit and we ended up releasing our COVID pricing which included a couple different things. One is that we cut our prices by 50% for everybody. Um, and we said that we would do that until we felt like we needed to raise them again. We're like, we're doing it for at least six months. The other thing that we ended up doing that honestly, we didn't have much perspective on is we ended up offering Loom for free to students and teachers and educators and people who are nonprofit. And what ended up happening that we now know is that these two teachers and students started picking up Loom you know, they're recording these videos or, you know, parents are seeing their kids like watch these Loom videos and then those people would pick it up in their workplaces. And so what ended up happening when we announced our COVID pricing, you know, March of 2020 is that we ended up growing like crazy, like almost overnight. I think that within a week time span, we ended up growing like every single metric 900%. And so 
all of our systems were failing. Like literally every single system was failing. Our desktop app was failing. Like our trans, like our video pipeline was failing. Like everything was failing. Our support systems were failing. Our customer support reps were just like completely underwater. And, you know, really the only way out of that was through. And so what ended up happening was myself and, and others ended up having to steer a rocket ship as people were working like 16 hour days and burning out. And I remember like there was all of this going on. So we were in an all hands and I remember getting called out by the support team because they were them and some of the infrastructure engineers were upset with me because I was like, hey, engineers need to be like coding right now. They need to be getting our systems back to healthy. And the engineers wanted to help support answer tickets. And I was like, that's just not a good use of our time. Right. And I remember just getting like called out and basically reamed out by the team on a call because everybody was just so burnt out. Right. And at the same time as like our systems are falling over, like half the company is like upset with me. The pandemic was hitting some of our international roommates really hard. And I remember being on calls with people who like broke down crying. Like I was on several calls with people who were just like not in a good place. Like they had very real issues and family members who were sick or knew other people who had like passed away. And it was just a really bleak time. And, you know, on top of all of this, in the middle of this, I heard from our infrastructure leader that they were leaving the company in a couple of weeks. The person who was like overseeing our servers, not being on fire, was leaving in a couple of weeks to go start their own company. And so it was just kind of this moment in time where everything was going wrong. And for a lot of people, I was like, the central problem that they were hinging on, or at least that was my perception of it. And I had to remember that people were not acting rationally and they really needed like a guiding hand. And so it was a lot more than just like the success of our metrics going up. There was like a whole shitstorm that was going on within the company that we had to navigate. And I'd say that there are so many lessons that I, that I carried away from that. But I mean, just explaining the situation, it's like, you know, learning how to be like a more stoic leader, learning, how to emotionally support people and like let them see the light at the end of the tunnel when there really is no reason to see any light at the end of the tunnel. Navigating a world pandemic as a leader and people getting like affected by something that's like so deeply emotional, there, there's so many lessons there. And then obviously the technical lessons too, right? Like just how do you, how do you capacity plan? Like it's impossible to capacity plan for that. Like what do you do? Do you 10X your server capacity? No, there's no way to do that. So then how do you actually learn about bottlenecks in the system? So a ton of technical learnings as well. It's interesting. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'd love to, I'd love to um, delve into one thing specifically. Like, how did you personally handle direct feedback or at least the direct perception of feedback that you, you weren't doing your job well? Honestly, like, it's one of those things where in front of the entire company, tried to be as buttoned up as possible, like obviously frustrated in certain conversations, but I think like off camera, like off Zoom in my own room, just like to total sort of destruction of confidence is one thing. There have been so many moments on this journey where I've genuinely been like, is this just really hard or am I like the wrong person, right? Like has Loom grown so fast that like the growth curve of the company and what it needs has outgrown my own ability to scale and my own potential, my own innate like ability. Lots of, lots of like crying, honestly, dude. Like I've had moments where 
you know, me and Joe were talking about engineering capacity and like, obviously there were like tons of fuck ups on my end and just breaking down crying and, you know, realizing that like, I, I think one thing that I really realized is just like how important if you're, especially if you're on a journey as dramatic as like the loom journey has been like, just how important it is to have a really close relationship with your co-founders, right? Like Joe just like reassuring me, hey man, like you're crying, you're not, you're not crying because like everything is bad, you're crying because you care. Like you care about this journey, like we're both so invested in it and we care about the people on our team and we don't wanna do wrong by them. I'd say like personal journey, just like realizing how lucky I am to have like such an incredible people that I get to work with. And it's not just Joe, like there's so many people on the team. Cause I feel like, if you're like really putting all of your ego into the company and like pushing as hard as you possibly can, which, you know, they're thinking on like five to 10 year timescales and they're putting their everything into the work. And because of that, like your ego is very close to the work. And when you inevitably hit up against the next like level of scaling issue that you've never dealt with before, because you're not qualified for this job, there is no qualification. It's like, I'd say every year or two years, you're faced with some situation where you're like, is this worth it? Like, am I the right person? I wish I could say that it, it gets easier, but for me, it, it really hasn't. I'd say that like the money and like, you know, any sort of financial success that Loom has had, like nothing becomes more apparent that that is secondary at this point than moments like that where you're like, how do I fix this? Like, how do I actually reach the next level of this company? Can I do it? Am I the right person? Do we have the right people in place? And it's an ego hit. It's it's really difficult. It's it is like a you know really loom is has been like a psychedelic trip. I don't know how else to explain it. It's just been a really intense journey, and it's been like really deep chapters of introspection. And you know, just as soon as you have like you're on this high of feeling really good about yourself, like something something hands hands you your ass on a silver platter, and you you end up having like ego dissolution again. And it's like it's a really terrible experience in the moment, but looking back on it, you become like a much better person and a much, well, hopefully you become a much better and more, more well-rounded well person. I, I know people where that has not been the case, but hopefully you do. Awesome, dude. It's been a massive pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Likewise, man. This has been fun, Dan. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. This one time, we have a major uh, server breakdown. We're worried that we lost like all our data and basically everything. And we're in that situation for like 24 hours. Everything is down. I'm sitting on the couch at home and like all night thinking, oh my God, I spent two years on this and it could all be gone. That was Heiner Zachariasen, the founder of Vivino, the app which helps you pick better wine and whose users scanned 380 million bottles of wine last year alone. When Vivino launched, there were 600 wine apps. Find out how they managed to come out on top.
Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stollerman, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.